हेलो और नमस्ते वेलकम टू ए टिपिकल दिक्कतें अ कॉन्वर्सेशन पॉडकास्ट आई एम योर होस्ट सौम्या एंड इन दिस पॉडकास्ट आई टॉक टू फेलो क्वियर न्यूरो डाइवर्जेंट एंड डिसेबल फोक्स वाई बिकॉज आई वॉन्ट टू इट इज अ जर्नी टू बिल्ड सॉलिडारिटी क्वियर इंटीमेसी एंड अ कम्युनिटी टूडे आई हैव शीर्षा विद मी शीर्षा इज अ फर्स्ट ईयर पी एच डी स्टूडेंट इन द इंग्लिश डिपार्टमेंट एट ब्राउन यूनिवर्सिटी दे आर अ पोएट a troublemaker a dog mom a multilingual mess and a lover of literature they find excitement in travel joy in their dog malaika and purpose in working with writers hello sisha how are you thanks for joining me today hello samya it's so wonderful to be here i'm very excited for today same it's it's mutual i'm so excited to talk about um, you know various things especially your love of literature but yeah let's dive into it um so when did you realize you were queer how was your journey of accepting your queerness um and how did it impact your relationship uh, with your family sure uh, so i always knew i was queer I just didn't necessarily have the language for it because nobody told me that it was a possibility um which it would have been nice to know that um this is a way of living and loving that uh, was available but it wasn't to me um I was around the age of 14 when I came out in terms of my sexuality I was very comfortable with my sexuality my parents and my family were not uh and that did cause a certain level of conflict um at the time I used to be very sad about that um but now looking back a decade later um i had a relatively good coming out story um there are people who have had much worse experiences so i'm um i consider myself lucky in that way even though the situation was not necessarily as positive as i would have liked it to be um in terms of my gender identity that i came to realize sometime in college and being the nerd that i was um i looked at what was happening in terms of my gender emotionally and intellectualized it so i spent a lot of time in the library reading my judith butlers and my lord balands um uh, trying to um uh, understand and i arrived um partially with the help of that but also partially with the help of just knowing non-binary people in college so that was a great experience for me um, and um I'm comfortable where I am now at this time um once again my family is it we 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 love each other doesn't mean we have to like each other and that's the way our dynamic works and um I'm coming to accept that at this point I agree and I relate to whatever you shared a lot and especially like after my diagnosis so much trauma has resurfaced and that's also I'm also coming to terms with that hey I love them but I don't have to like them all the time because of everything that I have been through the trauma and everything it's not been easy and that has also impacted my self-worth and self-esteem and how I accept and see myself so I relate to that and I also remember that time in university 
um when i was also poring over all the <laughs> books by judith butler um so yeah i i relate to what you shared um i see a resemblance uh, but yeah coming to the next question so while navigating through the indian legal system have you encountered any specific challenges or discrimination as a queer person um how do power dynamics within the legal system affect your ability to assert your rights as a queer individual yeah so i haven't had a whole lot of engagement with the legal system um i've tried to keep my interactions with the law minimum as much as possible uh i did um try to legally change my name and that was um such a complex process even for me um there there are very few like valid reasons that you can give the courts that they will accept for name change yes being trans is one of them but the level of paperwork that's involved in getting that i am not uh within the legal context a legally a trans person i don't have that transgender card i don't fit in uh, i don't use that kind of third gender category that we have within the indian system um just because there's a lot going on with that that i don't um that i don't think works for me um i am not an other gender that is not the way i like to think of myself and that is not the way i would like to categorize myself um so my like my identity is not represented in that list of male female or other or third right um that is not um something that works for me so because i don't have an official kind of transgender card situation um i'm not able to use transness as the reason to change my name so i have to figure out other ways of um making it work and i haven't yet been able to do that um that also obviously is complicated by the fact that i am currently abroad and you don't want to change your name legally when you're abroad because then your passport needs to change your then your visas and it, it's a it's a very dynamic complex process that i simply don't i don't have the support for um and the system that uh, is involved and in that doesn't really take into account that someone like me would exist right and, and that's an issue but other than that i um my engagement with the legal system has been pretty minimal and i've tried to keep it that way again i think um it reminds me of this quote by devon price i think um in their book um he says uh, being an autistic person is like being a queer person in the closet i often think about it the you know uh, parallel things which we experience very similar things and right now i'm thinking of the rpwd act you know the uh, rights for disabled persons act in india which is there and um, in order to qualify for a disability certificate so right now i have a diagnosis uh, for autism uh, but in order to get the disability certificate it's a long journey a long paperwork uh, where um, so called able bodied experts who don't have any lived experiences will uh, you know investigate you and if they determine that okay you are 40% disabled then only you will get the certificate and the benefits right so 
as it is there is very little understanding and very little research um, on like autism uh, because it was always considered a white male um boys thing condition right so there's so little research and then those old criteria they are being used again and again and people like us we are denied support so i don't i can't even think about doing that because it took me 11 12 years to get a diagnosis and i don't have the uh, energy or spoons to go through another battle so i you know i tried to manage things like even coming out as autistic in various settings has been tough in that regard what will people you know, how will people perceive me will they think that i'm not competent you know those are the fears because that discrimination has also happened so i see a lot of you know uh, parallel uh, things when I, when we talk about these identities so it was very uh, relatable in that sense um uh, yeah now that we are talking about disability um i want to ask you could you describe your experience with psychosocial disability and how it intersects with your queerness for sure um so i'm still kind of exploring and getting a sense of what's going on with <laughs> um psychosocial disability in in my life um I know that my depression and anxiety are connected to queerness and that's definitely there. Um again because of a lot of the red tape that you talked about diagnosis is something that I haven't um achieved <laughs> yet. Um but also something that I've been thinking about um whether or not I even want an official diagnosis on my paperwork um uh, for this for similar reasons then as the ones that you are describing in terms of being discriminated against in terms of like am i going to be considered competent in a medical setting uh where i want to make certain decisions that um knowing that i have a, a family who is not super supportive they might not want me to make so is is an official diagnosis something they could potentially use to um deny me the agency in medical settings is something that i i'm afraid of so i haven't really um fully pursued um official diagnosis at all um but uh which honestly it really um is a weird situation where i've spent the last few years three or four years wondering um if i'm autistic wondering if i have adhd and i can't pursue a test for fear of it actually coming out positive um and as much as like the disability community likes um has been supportive in terms of like a self diagnosis is valid um I don't feel like I'm qualified to make a self-diagnosis in the sense of like I don't understand these conditions well enough to make a self-diagnosis because there is no research out there like you said there's nothing out there um that I can refer to and be like okay here's a study of how autism manifests in like non-binary people and like it works like there's there's nothing like that out there so um Yeah, I don't I don't know. I feel uncomfortable claiming those spaces and claiming those identities at the moment. Um 
what I do know is I only got through college because I listened to a bunch of people who are neurodivergent, uh, who told me about strategies that worked for them. And I adopted them and I was like, wait, this is magic. Uh, how is this going on? Or they would talk about their struggles and I would be like, yeah, that sounds very similar. Um, but that's not a diagnosis at the end of the day. So um, I don't feel comfortable claiming those spaces in the absence of that. Um, but I also don't super feel comfortable pursuing that. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, <laughs> uh, but that's where my head's at at the moment. No, this is again is very this again is very relatable because I think I've been through that journey as well. There was a point I was like, why should anyone else decide if I'm autistic or not, or you know, neurodivergent or not? Because I know my body, I know my mind, what I'm going through, and I've adopted the you know um, strategies uh, while interacting with people in the community, and those have worked for me. Those helped me make sense of my lived experiences. But without that official thing, it was so difficult to get, uh, you know, because I have certain rights as well. And I do need that support and accommodations, especially in the workplace when, you know, things change a bit. So I had to get that in order to, you know, um, get my rights in a way, you know, um, because before that, I didn't have any quote unquote proof, you know, to even ask for those accommodations so i relate to that and i was so scared of taking up space i swear um you know i i i was scared of using the term disabled for myself and um, or, or even autistic for myself i use neurodivergent because it, it is not a medical term right it came from the movement the neurodiversity movement so i have been through that journey as well but uh, and I was so scared because, you know, the laws in certain countries like Australia, New Zealand, um, they are not disability friendly. Um, like you can be deported, like, you know, uh, so that it said it like they think that it's a burden on their healthcare system. Right. So um, I had all those fears and that's why I didn't want to get a diagnosis. But I reached a position where I had to. And I wish that isn't the case. That wasn't the case. Because also these labels, you know, I think they are limiting because neurodivergence, as we talked about it, you know, there's so little research. So even all these conditions are not researched properly. So there's a lot of overlap that is there. And sometimes people try to fix um, these conditions under these labels, which is limiting. Uh, it's like, you know, this, 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 okay, this is autism. This, 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 it's ADHD. But it's more than that. You know, and uh, um, so sometimes they like the the challenges or the conditions might be parallel. Sometimes they might be oppositional as well. You know, conflicting. And um, so, how do we navigate them? I often think about that because uh, um, you know, so obviously, like more research needs to be done. You know, more thought needs to be put into these things, especially uh, by those who are working on the mental health sphere. So it's like. It's not the burden of neurodivergent people to, you know, navigate all these things alone. Support should be given. We talk about equity, but I see um, it lacking a lot, especially when we talk about non-visible disabilities. People people can't see it and um, it just gets very lonely without support. 
um so yeah like again it's a great segue um for my next question that i had for you uh, what barriers have you encountered in accessing culturally competent and queer affirmative therapy or mental health support oh wow um <laughs> going back to your point about like it's not our it, it's not our prerogative it, it's not up to neurodivergent people to figure everything out ourselves um it becomes somehow worse when support is provided without consulting us um and that has really been my experience with like mental health support uh, therapy i haven't encountered um i haven't had uh, positive encounters with therapy at all if i'm being entirely honest um i have been forced into therapy in school which in indian schools if you've been forced into therapy you know it's not a good um school or the, or good dynamic um i've nearly ended up in conversion therapy this was pre decriminalization um of 377 so you know narrow escapes um i thought things would get better after coming to the states um so when i went um to college for undergrad in in the US i decided to pursue therapy there thinking hey it's not criminal here so i'll be fine um and i encountered a whole bunch of racism within that space um and it's it's just not been um a lot of the times i feel like i have to choose between being desi and being queer um when i'm pursuing mental health support specifically but also in general like you have to choose between being desi and being queer uh, a lot of the times um i recently went to the um counseling and psychological services um center here on our uh campus at brown and when i asked them i was like hey i just want somebody who understand south asian culture to some extent i don't want to be the educator in the room right um because if you're the educator are you really getting mental health support right um and once again i like the first question this person asked me is it okay if they're cis het um when they're like we we have someone who's south asian but i don't know their identity which like fair but um So again I had to choose between getting a queer counselor and they have like I was very happy to see um queer non-binary counselors at um the center but I had to choose between that and somebody who understands Desi culture we'll see how it goes um I am very anxious about it I'm not confident I want to actually pursue this but um we'll see I I hope it works out um because i've been so traumatized by mental health care professionals i was so scared of getting help but recently i have started um, seeing a queer and neurodivergent uh, therapist so i'm hoping it works out um yeah let's let's see how it goes but again like even the whole process of history taking is so re traumatizing 
like i'm so tired of putting all that emotional labor again and again and again just to you know give my history to these mental health care professionals and emotional labor is everywhere um when i work uh, if i want to have personal relationships um if i want to get support somehow we end up being the educator all the time but it should be you know uh, at least in the mental health space or like when we go to professionals they should have that understanding you know that that baseline what are the systemic issues that we are going through and even in, within like uh, like at least some effort should be there right some like 50 50 say some effort should be there but it always ends up being you know like you have to put all the emotional labor and it's exhausting it does re-traumatize you i know my you know um, like trauma triggers have worsened um, after all these um, interactions and i can see it because my body feels unsafe you know the uncomfortable uh, sensations i feel it in my body and i can't control the reactions it is so difficult yeah i'm sorry about i'm sorry that you've had that experience um it bothers me as well i think it's not a trauma informed approach basically um you have to earn somebody's trust before you go to them and say hey give me all your deepest darkest secrets right tell me about all the times that you've hurt yourself or whatever um it's not a medical question it's not simply a medical question it's not simply a matter of asking somebody how many times have you broken this arm um it's it's a matter of asking them to be vulnerable and that that is something you have to have a certain level of rapport beforehand and that was the, and the approach of having that happen in the first appointment uh, it just doesn't work i don't think um yeah the way intake is done with certain uh, by by certain practitioners is just it's not informed by um by an understanding of trauma i don't think i just hope more and more uh, marginalized people from like you know different marginalized identities um come into the space because i see that as one of the ways to change the landscape or you know make it a little better um because most of them don't come from lived experiences and uh, yeah that's why it's even more traumatizing and it's very scary to ask for <laughs> it's very scary um yeah so um you know uh, one of the questions that i wanted to ask before we got into and this discussion you you mentioned about like you know you have you having to choose between being queer or desi um in the states so um coming back to that have you encountered instances of queerophobia or toxicity uh within the queer community either here in india or even you know um in the us and how did you navigate these situations um how can the queer community work together to address the internal conflicts that we have uh, mm-hmm. so that we can create a more inclusive and supportive environment for different intersectional identities uh wow okay so i i think i'll answer the first part of that question um better i think 
Yes, there have been instances of toxicity, queerphobia within the queer community, um, both in the U.S. and in India. I've had I've had those experiences. Uh, a lot of the times, it comes down to either a, a very rigid understanding of what queerness is, um, which is just like either like bisexuality doesn't exist or what are they them pronouns that's taking things too far or it comes down to an attitude of well you're not queer enough to a great extent simply because I choose to um, dress in a way that is more femme that is more aligned with my uh, gender that was assigned to me at birth Um, that's a choice I make partially because that's how I want to dress partially because that's how it's safe to dress um but a lot of the times even within the queer community it can be a matter of looking at me and going well you're not actually uh, non-binary because you don't present yourself as such you don't present yourself as this or that um and to me it's um do I have all the answers in terms of like how we can promote a more inclusive environment? No, I I really don't. What I do believe in is not um, talking to people and saying, well, this is your right. Like you are not valid because you made X, Y, or Z choice Um, that there are certain valid ways of being queer. And then there are other ways of being queer. And it just doesn't, that doesn't sit right with me as a concept. Um, And that's definitely one way to be more inclusive is to be like, hey, queerness happens in all of these different circumstances. Let's talk um, about why we're doing this. And one thing that's important to understand is that when we're looking at queer communities in any country, there is a subculture that's associated with it. There's a certain type of... um, dress a certain type of music a certain type of um, cultural association that every community has associated with it Um, that doesn't mean that in order to be queer somebody has to like that type of music right has to like if I'm queer in Delhi I have to wear organic fabrics and khadi like that is not the only way of being queer right um or if i'm queer in um calcutta apparently i have to really like this specific kind of bangla revolutionary music like no there are that is not um the way it is or even with neurodivergence like you must love dungeons and dragons if you are neurodivergent i'm like no i i don't and that doesn't change the fact that i am it it just so there's certain things about the way um the culture operates versus like the identity operates that's interesting to me but also that's that that i feel um does uh, does a good job at excluding people who would potentially be part because it narrows down our idea of what um you what members of this community look like and behave like i don't know if that answered your question it does and um, it reminds me of nick walker um you know the online autistic community and i think nick walker um 
she's a pioneer uh, who started talking about the neuroqueer um, theory, the neuroqueer movement. And I love that because um, nobody, like, you know, there's no fixed definition on, you know, no, no fixed characteristics. On There's nothing, like, nothing is fixed. You can be whoever you want to be. So whenever I, I identify as neuroqueer, so when I say that I can, it's a universe and I'm a star. Uh, in that universe i can be whatever i want to be um like nobody's going to put me in a box in a label under a label where i have to do these 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 things in order to you know qualify as being um queer or you know neurodivergent um because i i feel lonely even in queer spaces and even in like you know autistic and neurodivergent spaces because i can't relate with the culture or you know um like i'm a different person i just feel so lonely even in these spaces um i can i don't watch um a lot of the stuff that people watch and talk about i don't listen to a lot of stuff that people you know um listen to and talk about so i don't relate to that like but i'm still queer i'm very much you know neuroqueer i'm still very much autistic but uh, yeah it's it to get it does get lonely in these spaces when um, certain cultural characteristics are associated oh you know um if you are queer you'll do these things if you are ace you will do these things um if you are neurodivergent oh you have to be a nerd i mean i am a nerd but you know i'm not into board games for example or you know those things i'm i'm not into them so yeah it um, it does make things a bit lonely to be very honest um yeah but yeah um i want to ask you what brings you joy as a queer person how does your queerness bring you joy oh that's such a good question um i think there's a certain level of connection that comes in when you embrace your queerness and when the people around you embrace their queerness and you're all like embracing your queerness together um there's um there's beauty in that and there's comfort in that um and there's love in that and i don't mean love in like a romantic sense i mean very much as a self love thing and as a love of community thing um that that is joy that is fun um i also just like love dismantling systems that authority that figures in authority love so if i can confuse the heck out of some guy in hr because i don't have a last name and um like that that brings me joy to a great extent um so there's there's a certain level of fun that that comes in to um i talk about like systems not acknowledging us and that being an issue and that's definitely there but when you meet somebody who is very entrenched into the system and who has been working with that system and putting people into that system for a very long time and you come along and you just kind of break their understanding of how it works and how it's not as absolute as they like to think it is um there's joy in that i take i take a certain level of like perverse joy um in in confusing the heck out of people uh, so there's there's um there's joy in making space for yourself and for your beliefs and for things that are important to you especially in places um 
where those things have not been important in the past, um, where those things have not ever been considered um, important. Uh, there's joy in helping somebody find um, their identity. I have become, to some extent, the person that um, the people in my community reach out to and be like, hey, um, you're like the first person I've met who uses they, them pronouns. Can we like sit and talk about that? Um, and, I, I, and I've become that person in some of my communities. And it's, it's a joy to see somebody realize that it's okay to not fit within whatever gender was ascribed to you. Or um, I talked before about never being given the language and never being told that these are ways of loving and being in the world. I love being the person who tells other people that, hey, there are alternatives to um, the life that has been presented to you by um, the conservative family or school system that you're part of. So there's a certain level of joy in that. Um, or just like, I just had a conversation a couple of days ago um, with somebody who um, is trying to figure out what to do with their life. Um, and there's some fun in telling that person, like, hey, I didn't know what I was doing um, at your age, and that's okay. Um, it's okay to not know, and it's okay to not have answers um, because the society always wants us to have the answer. What's your name? What's your gender? And you're just supposed to, like, tick the right box, and it's uh, I love being the person who... Uh, crosses out that question or adds like by hand adds another option or a box to uh, to the multiple choice um, questions um, uh, or makes that question not um, necessary or not required it's there's there's joy in that I love working with writers um, I love helping people find their voice um, I help being there to guide them when they're stuck and there's joy in that so yeah there's lots of ways to find like tiny little joys I think yeah I, I this is one of the thing that um, I was talking about in my last therapy session you know when we reduce the trauma or the anger the grief that you're sitting it sitting with what are the things that you want to replace it with? And I was like, I want happiness. I want joy. I don't want to always talk about, you know, my trauma. I don't want to get stuck in that loop. I want to find joy. So we were discussing what are the things that bring me joy. And like you said, building communities, um, helping others out, um, you know, in realizing their dreams. Um, it does bring like so much joy. Because a part of me feels like, you know, um, I just, I'm just reminded of the younger version of me. And, uh, you know, it does bring a certain sense of uh, joy. So I do relate to that a lot. Um, and uh, uh, like you mentioned about writing. So how does being queer inform your writing? I mean, I write about my life and my experiences and queerness is part of that um so a lot of my writing practice is concerned with just like okay um 
talking about this lived experience. And we're in a, in a wonderful space right now with that um, in the world. Up until like the last hundred years, people were not writing about queerness as queerness. Um, it let's be honest, there there were a lot of people who were, but there was this kind of need to shroud it under something, right? Um, or not be able to talk about it directly, or being afraid of um censors, being afraid of the reception that your text would have. Um, the famous Indian example is, of course, that of Lihaf. Um, and even that story, as obviously queer it is, it is not explicitly queer. It's obviously queer, but it's not explicitly queer. Um, I love the fact that there's this kind of thing of queer um, literature that's out there, that there you can go into a bookstore and have a section that's like queer literature. Um, and you can go to a library and have like queer literature or LGBTQ literature as like part of the the categories. You can be explicit about queerness and the possibilities that that allows. Um, so it's it's a nice space to be in, and of course, being queer, uh, being somebody who um, discovered a lot of queerness through books. I love reading about queerness as well, and that ends up informing my writing. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's one of many life experiences that make it into my writing, I would say. Yeah, the joy that I feel when I enter a bookstore and I can say, hey, I need feminist literature or I need queer literature. And the book, um, like the person who is sitting at the shop, they're like, you know, these, these, this. Um, like, I had never thought, you know, I would see a day like this where I could go to a bookshop and you know say that okay these are the books that I'm interested in because um, for the longest time I believed there was something wrong in me and uh, um, you know it's not quote-unquote normal and uh, I need to fix it or I need to hide it I need to mask or be someone else so I fit in so I never imagined like you know I'll see something like this and um, even like when I started using the pride flag, it, it's very recent. I think I started it in 2021. Before I used to only write in my SOPs. <laughs> At, um, just doing that was so empowering. Like I deserve to take up space. That was just so empowering and joyous. And, um, you know, it's like we are exposed to so much trauma, so much discrimination and then we are pathologized okay something is wrong with you it's uh, like you know the defense mechanisms or the protective mechanisms that come up they are because of the distress that we experienced and then like you are put into a box like you know this is something that's wrong with you and that's not okay you need to fix the you know cultural barriers or you know societal barriers before you um, put the problem or the onus on the individual so and like you said you know just questioning the system breaking the system because of no self-worth and self-esteem I was not able to assert myself but when um, I decided that you know nobody's going to like you know say what's right and not right for me like this this need to take up space which I deserve it brought a great sense of empowerment and joy. And uh, 
I just hope it helps other people because I've seen it helps other people. People don't write it out or express it publicly, but they see, um, you know, that and uh, it does help the community. So I, I relate to that a lot. Um, so, yeah, another question that I had is how do you balance uh, the desire to raise awareness about queer experiences through your writing and uh, the need for creative expression and storytelling because I struggle with it a lot. My personal life is my professional life and I'm always talking about sociopolitical issues but I also know I don't have the bandwidth for it. So, you know, 10-12 hours every day I'm working, I'm thinking. Uh, so, you know, that's why like I need to fill things, uh, fill it with other things in order to create that balance because uh, it does affect your mental health right so how do you balance it um if I'm honest I don't um (laughs) um I used to put on myself the pressure of being the queer writer and being like the the, there are a lot of queer voices in the um queer desi voices out there um in the writing scene but um none really that are similar to mine um so I used to put myself that pressure put on myself that pressure to you know raise awareness and represent the queer experience and I just stopped it's like that is not that's a lot of pressure to put on anybody and that is not something that I need to be doing to myself um so the only pressure I put myself on now is to be authentic in telling my own story. And my story is a queer story, um, but it it's not exclusively queer. As far as the story is concerned, there are other elements to it. And it is not the only queer story. There are others out there, right? Um, and part of the work that I do with young writers is, or emerging writers is designed to be like, I don't have to be the only queer voice or I don't have to be one of the only queer voices. Um, If I'm not putting the pressure of that on myself, I'm helping an emerging writer who's also queer kind of like come up, right? And that is, um, that's beautiful in and of itself. Um, So yeah, I don't, I don't put on myself the pressure to raise awareness about queer experiences at all. Um, I talk about being authentic to my life, which is a queer life. Um, but it's it's more than that. And there are more queer lives out there. And that's okay. Um, and that is how I, I, I balance it, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah. no, that makes sense. And... Um... Uh, this also reminds me why I started the podcast, you know, um, to experience joy. Like this was, I mean, I got grant, chota chota grant, small grants and fellowships that happened later. But um, the idea was to chronicle these stories, chronicle the joy. Because there's mm-hmm. so much out there. Uh, people are speaking about us. They're talking about us from their lenses, from a very heteronormative, from a very able-bodied um lens all of that but what about queer joy or you know what about autistic joy what about disabled joy um there is rage there is frustration which is valid but there's also joy and we are not always victims you know that narrative that is there out there 
that needs to change um, you know like fighting every single day all these societal barriers um like we are not victims but also don't put us on a pedestal that okay you know it's so inspiring to hear these stories no work on the systemic issues please <laughs> so um yeah um i i like i'm just reminded of that yeah the thing that i always tell my friends who are trying to be allies and not necessarily able to figure out how to be allies is to stop admiring me for being strong and start removing the reason i need to be um and that's true for everybody in every circumstance if you're trying to be an ally don't admire the person for being strong for being resilient um being you know insert adjective that you want to put in your advertisement here um it, and start removing the reasons they they have had to be because they're not strong like they, like people like to be all like oh you're a strong woman and i'm like I'm not by choice uh so like neither strong nor a woman by choice so, like think about that for a second right um uh, and those are important things to think about um and so if you want to be an ally there's there's your uh, blueprint one of the many blueprints for being a good ally yeah definitely like you know shift the lens you know we shouldn't be doing the emotional labor everything is out there and we have been putting it out for years actually and still somehow <laughs> people don't read it up or you know that it needs it does need intentional work if you want to be an ally it's not just what uh, a noun it has to be a verb right allyship is a verb mm-hmm. you need to act on it you need to show it and um, and for that you need to do the work even our loved ones you know if you want to support it because power dynamics exist when marginalized identities come into play power dynamics exist and you need to acknowledge that um, that is the first step you know um you can't just like brush it off uh, i don't know why but accepting privilege is very difficult for people um like uh, i understand it takes a journey and everything but like privilege is not black and white right um, you might be privileged on certain fronts you might be disprivileged in other fronts and it is okay to accept that and work on it you know that is how you understand intersectionality and live it and even like in the social justice space when you get opportunities when you take space it also elevates your social status in a way uh, when other people are not able to get it from the community so even that is also a privilege uh, and people need to start acknowledging it so we can make you know actually um, create an equitable environment actually practice disability justice you know feminist justice that we talk about um so yeah i, I often think of that like i think mia mingus told it right like um, um marginalized people uh, are some of the worst in acknowledging their privileges uh, i don't remember the exact words but it was something similar uh, but yeah i was i often think about that <laughs> um So yeah, I have my final question for you. Um could you describe the key differences that you observed um between the education systems in India and the states particularly in their treatment of queer issues and inclusivity? And um yeah, how do you envision creating affirming spaces within educational 
institutions that would uh, benefit queer individuals, disabled individuals? For sure. Um, one thing that I will put out there is I did my schooling in India, but college in the States. So when I'm comparing the two, I'm also comparing two different stages of education, right? School and college in general, even within India would be very different. School in the US, I have no experience for. So that's that's the perspective I'm coming from. Um, and the thing that surprised me about the American education system is um, when I first came in was that queerness is acknowledged as a lived reality of people and the systems are designed around that. And that's just not something that I'd ever experienced before. So I was like, whoa, that was like a culture shock moment for me. So one of the things that the first thing that, in fact, that I encountered within the American system, this was before even catching my flight to come to the States, was in our like system, I could put in a preferred name, and that was different than my legal name, and I could be referred to by my preferred name if I so choose. Um, that's not something you see in the Indian education system. That's not something that we care about. Um but the fact that there was a system to allow for that um, really made me feel very um, empowered to take a name that I'd only really been using on social media um, and bring it into my everyday lived experience. And a lot of the people I met in the States don't even know my legal name, right? Uh, they only know me as Yusha. And I love that. I love the beauty of that. Um in India, even if I asked people to call me by my preferred name, it always came down to, well, this is the name they use in roll call um, the, that the teacher uses when she's taking attendance or that is used in the system. So it would never like take, the preferred name would never take on. Um, so it was empowering to me that my classmates did not know my my legal name unless I chose to disclose it to them, right? Um, so those types of things were very powerful. We had student groups who were queer-centered, um, which was beautiful. Here um, at Brown, it's it's amazing. So I go to the, I, when I come here, my first thing that I did was go to the ID center to get my card, my student card. And it had my preferred name on it. And it, that, that, that just brought me so much joy. But like there is, there's two separate centers here that are funded by the university. One for the study of gender uh, and feminism and another, a different one for queer students so there's an lgbtq center and then there's a, a gender center and those are two separate centers and wow um and those two are like student life centers there's also an academic center for feminist and gender studies which is a separate thing so there's three separate centers that are dealing with this as an identity um and all of that is included. They have web pages that have very like detailed information on how to get certain things within the university if you need to. Um, I've mentioned this to you before. We just had a, a trans tape workshop. Um, and was it perfect? No. But 
the fact that there was even a workshop on how to use tape to bind um, is a discussion that we've had that we wouldn't have had um, in India ever, right? Um, I can't even imagine that being a, a conversation in, in India. One of the things that they have is a closet where you can go and you can, they have binders in different sizes and different styles. So you can go and you can try on the binders um, to see which one fits you best before you buy it for yourself. So that that way you can try them on and see which ones you like. And you don't have to spend the money on that trial and error process of finding the right binder. Um, there's clothing, gender affirmative clothing, makeup, all of that stuff there that you can like pick and take. Um, and that's a resource for students. Right? Um, I wish we had that. Um, I, I wish I had that as a, uh, as a student in India. That's just not there. Um, so there's certain things about the education system here that is beautiful um, that, that I find very affirming that I didn't have in India at all. Um, I can ask people to, I can tell my teachers, like, hey, these are my pronouns. Um, and they do respect those pronouns, right? Um, I know students at other institutions in the UK. I didn't study abroad in the UK, um, but I knew students who had reported their teachers for not respecting pronouns when they had been disrespected. And there's space for them to um, complain against teachers who are being toxic, right? Um, that is something that I would love to see, that I would have had, loved to have had. Uh, I had a few teachers I would like to report for being toxic. Um, even today in India, um, I would love to report them. But like, th those are not spaces that we had. So it's not perfect here. There, there are issues for sure. Um, and I do want to acknowledge that and keep in mind. But there is a, there is a certain acknowledgement here within the education system that one, queer people exist. Two, um, Queer people um, need support and resources uh, that are not easily available um, outside. And three, the university is considered worth their time to provide the budget and the monetary resources to create that, right? Um, and that's something that has not been easily achieved. I know a lot of students, who have basically acted as advocates um, and activists and created these spaces and fought for these spaces. And I want to acknowledge that um, these have not been like gifted by the university, um, but I'm benefiting from those people. I am still alive partially because of um, the fact that these resources exist. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but yeah, I wish, I wish, at least uh, that first point was covered in the Indian system. It's like we acknowledge to the kids that, hey, queerness exists. Some of you might be queer. Um, let's talk about that. Let's acknowledge it um, in these specific ways. Let's allow children to try on different names, try on different pronouns. Um, that would be lovely, but I haven't seen that. To the best of my knowledge, that's not there, um, at least at the at the college level. Uh, sorry, at least at the school level, which is the experience that I have. Yeah, even that acknowledgement 
can do so much for queer people's well-being emotional well-being like for me i think when people say that hey i see you i hear you um i'm trying to understand um you know your identity your unique identity or how you navigate the world what are the differences what are the challenges but i'm not fully equipped to you know um support that but i'm trying even that acknowledgement means a lot to me um you know and it has come with time as well but that acknowledgement is the first step hey we can't fix everything for you but we are trying and putting that intentional work you know um that is that actually does so much for someone's mental and emotional well-being um so i wish i wish uh, we had that but uh, it just seems like it's it's going to be a very long fight and uh, uh, we just need to keep passing on the batons at this point um because honestly all of us are, i just i just see the exhaustion because uh, the personal is, becomes professional and even if you are not in the social justice space it just somehow becomes professional because you are trying to assert it at you know at the educational level even when you're working so it is exhausting like when do you find time to rest <laughs> like always fighting the normative structures and everything so when do you actually rest um yeah any parting thoughts uh, shisha um i don't think so but thank you so much for having me this has been an interesting conversation and i'm i'm very glad to be here it was it was lovely to have you um, you know and uh, talk to you and hear about your experiences your insights it was fun also um it was fun um i i i was laughing i was smiling uh, and that was like one of the things that um i wanted to achieve to build that intimacy you know that queer intimacy that sense of community and when someone else hears this uh, they will be like oh hey i relate to this you know so i hope uh, it happens to someone out there uh, but thank you again for joining me today if you are hearing this message you have listened to the entire episode so thank you for sticking around you can listen to atypical dikkatein on spotify and if you want to reach out to me your host somya check out the linktree link in the description see ya